Hi, this is Corey Turner, and along with my wife Simone, we are the senior pastors of Numa Church. I wanted to thank you for listening to our podcast today. You're about to hear a message from one of our team that we pray builds your faith and empowers you to follow Jesus more closely. Enjoy the message. You never know where things will go when you share your story. Um, we're uh, right now just finishing on Tuesday night our second group of uh, training our small group leaders. We call them facilitators for the Life Keys courses and of course small group leaders, the home groups, they all need small group leaders as well. And Helen and I are going to just dedicate ourselves to creating the best small group leaders and then the best kind of courses that you can run through those small groups because it changes people's lives. And um, the wonderful thing is that I just had the, the media team of Numa just delivered to me this week the latest uh, version of Search for Life and we're going to be running the Search for Life at Numa next year. We're going to be running a whole, uh, beginning two courses every term next year as we uh, update them and hand them over to the next generation because that's where I am in my life trying to find the next bright sparks in the, amongst the young men and women of Numa to hand over this ministry that Helen and I have come out of our, our journey over the past years. And it's always wonderful to meet someone where you say, that changed my life. Because uh, uh, we meet people like that all over the world. Our courses are running over 23 countries. And uh, we find ourselves just so grateful to be part of Numa and uh, be able to plant what we have and see it flourish in a whole new house in Jesus' name. I want to talk to you this morning about faithful discipleships in Babylon. Um, this, was a be- this would be a better message last week after the, uh, after the election. But the, and I don't care who you voted for. But the reality is that uh, our, our governmental culture is not going to change in the next four years. That's all now been settled because Australia is not a Christian country, it's a democracy. And whatever 50% of the people want, that's what you get. And uh, for all of the good things the government have done, some of the things they've done have not been good. And some of the elements that they've done have in many ways intimidated the Christian church and in some ways uh, even put restrictions on its ability to do ministry. But that's not the first time in history that ever happened. And I want to talk to you today about the power of creating a different culture, your own culture. Because we are not subject to simply be the fruit of what our community thinks is acceptable and okay and how to live our life. There is a great power in culture because you become what you are one day at a time. Um, very, very difficult. We, Helen and I are involved in all kinds of counselling uh, Helen is a uh, qualified counsellor and she's also um, a, has a master's in sexual health and so uh, she does a lot of counselling with Christian couples and um, the reality is uh, it's not easy to see people change. It takes a miracle to see people change. It's not easy to change. Anyone that's ever been on a diet knows that you can have good intentions but it's really difficult to stick with that and make actually long-term permanent change is really a tough thing if you don't get help. Um, the, the reality is that um, you become what you are one day at a time. The choices that you make each day kind of build a character, build a personality, build a body, build a mind, the brain, all of that gets built one day at a time. And so culture can play a really important part in that. Now, Western culture has changed a great deal in my lifetime. I have memories that uh, some of you in, in this room will have never experienced. There was a time in Melbourne's culture when 75% of the entire population were in church on a Sunday. You go back to the beginning of the 20th century and Melbourne was full of people who were worshippers every single Sunday. Uh, I remember a time when the shops were all closed on a Sunday because Sunday was a day of rest. Uh, it was a day of rest of worship. There was no football on a Sunday and it would be unthinkable to, ha- to have football on Good Friday. That was unthinkable. Um, it's just a different culture. Uh, you couldn't hire a tennis court on a Sunday when I was a kid 
because you weren't supposed to be playing tennis on a Sunday. Public speech. You would never hear filthy language spoken on a television set or, or over a radio because public speech was dignified and it was modified and it was restrained. When I was a kid and TV first came, uh, became part of our lives, they wouldn't even use the word adultery in the news because they didn't want to be saying something that was so unfamily family friendly when children might be watching. So a word like adultery would just never be used. They had little, uh, they had ways of saying things that got it across to adults without saying words like that. I grew up in a, I grew up uh, in a, uh, an environment where pornography was just non-existent. Um, I never had the problem of, uh, of uh, having to grow up in, in a community surrounded by a pornified environment. I was speaking in Toowoomba just a couple of years ago when before COVID kind of shut everything down. And for, for I, I spent six different sessions with six different um, Christian schools and heard the stories of how Christian kids in Christian schools struggle with the fact that out there in the playground, out there in the school ground, lunchtime and breaks, there'd be kids with mobile phones showing each other pornography. I didn't grow up in that world. And as a result, I have not had the same struggles that um, many of the people I minister to today are faced because they've grown up in a very different culture. Pornography was non-existent. Marriage and divorce were taken very seriously when I was a, a younger man. And culture in Melbourne used to play some role in getting people to go to church, in getting people to worship, in uh, encouraging family stability, in respect for the Bible. Um, I remember a time when vacation Bible school was part of the environment of Australian culture. It was this current government that actually removed Christian counsellors uh, from uh, high schools right across this state to make sure that that, could, that just was not going to, we're not going to have Christians doing this job. We'll get qualified other people that don't have any faith issues. We'll bring them into our high schools. Um, that, that's, now, that's now part of the culture of this, uh, of this state. But I remember a time when revivals broke out in our schools. I was part of a revival at Lilydale High School in 1975. I was dragged into the principal's office one day and he was waving his finger in my face saying, we are not going to have a revival in this school. And the reason he was saying it is because we were having a revival in the school. <laughs> I was leading kids to Jesus six a day at the back of the typing class. We'd have a hundred kids in the, in the lunchtime meeting uh, on, on a Thursday. But I remember when I was going to school that vacation Bible schools would run. I remember a local Baptist church running a major a Bible outreach in the primary school where I was attending. And I still remember the Salvation Army band standing and playing hymns on a Sunday morning on my street corner. How many people heard that the last few weeks? You've never heard it because it's not part of our culture any longer. Uh, it's a distant memory. Culture has changed. And uh, as a result, uh, we need to appreciate the fact that there's a lot about our culture that does not promote or encourage people to think about the big issues of life and about the significance of faith, worship, the Bible, and all of these profoundly significant issues. That's not where our culture is today. It's not the first time it's happened. It's been a drift in my lifetime. I watched this unfold. If you go back to the time of Moses, God made a decision to establish not only his nation in Canaan, but to establish a culture that would help fortify all of the experiences of faith. And so under Moses, they established first a tabernacle. And the purpose of the tabernacle was to explain to people give them a visual picture of what it means to have a relationship with God. God's holy. Put the white tent around it. Put the white, uh, the white fence around the tabernacle. And then inside you, there would be the, the sacrifices and the washing bowl, which speaks of washing of the water of the word. Then the holy place, because God is holy. And in there, the, the lamp that burned with oil, the, the presence and the power of the spirit of God. And then in the holiest of holies, because God is extraordinary. There was only one person who could enter, and that was with blood. All to teach us about the, the vital importance 
of Jesus Christ who would one day come and shed his blood to open the veil and allow people to enter into a relationship with God. You don't just wander into a relationship with God. Uh, He's holy and we aren't and we have needed an intercessor and we have needed a sacrifice that make all of that possible. Then he he transported all of that uh, under King David into Jerusalem. And there with David and King Solomon, they built the temple and all that was in the tabernacle was transferred into the temple. And now there was a culture established and the entire way that the the community worked was intended to underline a power of a relationship with God. The tabernacle, then the temple, then the law, then the priesthood. Everything about the priesthood was to explain things about a relationship with God and who Jesus Christ would need to be. Then there were the sacrifices. You want a pathway to meet God? Let me talk to you then about the burnt offering and the grain offering and the fellowship offering and the sin offering and the guilt offering. The entire culture was intended to help people understand a relationship with God is vital and significant. And then finally, the feasts. They set up the entire year. You had the Passover, big remembrance then, Uh, 50 days later you had Pentecost and reminding the fact that at Sinai God married us we became his people he became our God Uh, we belong to him and then at the end of the year the great feast of weeks and the greatest day of all the great day of atonement the entire year was set up to remind people about how a relationship with God works Um, We have little remnants of that. We still have Christmas and it's coming up. And for one brief period, people will have an opportunity to remember the fact that Jesus Christ is so significant, he's still in our calendar. And the same is true of Easter. His death is so significant, it's still in the calendar of Western countries that recognised the Bible was truth and the great grace of God and the way revivals have flowed over the nations over the years. That's still there. That little remnant is still there in our calendar. But for Israel, the entire year was built around this issue of the relationship with God. Now, what do we learn from that? Well, one thing we learn from that is that culture is extraordinarily important, but it's not enough. It isn't enough. Culture is not enough. You can't just socialize people into a relationship with God. It can help support it, but it doesn't pull it off. It requires a change in the spirit of a human being to really have faith in God, to love God, for there to be willing obedience to God, holiness, righteousness, understanding of justice. All of these things require more than culture. Thank God for it when it works. But something has to happen inside every individual's heart. There's got to be an encounter with the Spirit of God. Culture can be conditioning, but transformation requires an encounter with the Spirit. And Israel has been a very sad demonstration of that. Under King David, Jerusalem became the capital city of God's plan to bring salvation to the entire world. Solomon began well, but then, and he he established the temple, but then as he aged, he drifted. And by the time he died, his sons were wicked men. And under the leadership of Solomon's sons, they split the kingdom into two, the northern 10 tribes and then Judah and Benjamin around Jerusalem in the south. And the next hundreds of years demonstrated that culture is not enough. You've got to have an encounter with the Holy Spirit of God. And the reality is, and we're dealing with a God who is holy and he will always fulfill his word. He'll always do what he said he will do. And he had warned them, if you ever turn aside from me, if you ever replace me with, with your own corrupt ideas, if you, if you replace me, it'll cost you profoundly. It's an expensive thing to forget and lose your intimacy with God. And then over the next years, you had prophets that came and warned the 10 northern tribes, we, they called them Israel, uh, and eventually... One wicked king after another, it came to the crunch in 722 BC when Assyria conquered the northern tribes of Israel and uh, under the the ministry of Jeremiah, Jeremiah said to to those northern tribes, God is giving you a certificate of divorce. He married you at Sinai, today he divorces you. 
I'm letting you go. I'm not putting up with your adultery any longer. You're finished. They have never been recovered. It is a, for, it's a forever warning that a relationship with God needs to be maintained and sustained through faith and courageous obedience because a, a culture around you is not enough. Uh, there's also a, a, a kind of a wickedness that can envelop any community. And in that situation, people will embrace their worst inclinations and Israel was lost and gone, has never been recovered. For the next 100 years, Jerusalem uh, continued on as the center and uh, God sent prophets to them also, warning them that there was a need and there would be good kings and there would be bad kings. The great revival, the last great revival in Israel took place under Josiah. And it was under Josiah's ministry that the prophet Daniel was born as a child toward the end of Josiah's ministry. And prophet after prophet warned them, do not give way to the base elements that can turn you from being a faithful follower to being as corrupt and broken as anyone else, even when you're surrounded by religious stuff. And eventually, tragically, uh, they didn't listen so well either. And then after the death of Josiah, then the fulfillment of God's warnings. And Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon came across and first of all conquered the Judah they, and took just some of the elements of the temple back to Babylon. And many of the, of the young men in the, in the king's household were taken back to Babylon with a view to training them to become good emissaries, to become, um, to become good leaders who understood Jewish people uh, but would rule them on behalf of Babylon. And Daniel me, and uh, the three friends that he took were part of those captives that first were taken to Babylon. Over the next three years, uh, they would tr every now and then they would try to rebel against Babylon, didn't work so well. And finally, in 587 BC, Nebuchadnezzar totally and utterly destroyed the city of Jerusalem and totally destroyed the temple and took all of its implements, all of these sacred implements that had been developed and built and created over those hundreds of years were taken off to Babylon as part of uh, the spoils of war. Um, that, captip, that, captip, that captivity meant that some of the brightest and best teenagers in the royal house of Judah ended up in Babylon and the question is how will these young people go? What will happen to these young people? How will they now fare? How will their faith develop now that they're no longer surrounded by a culture that supports it? Uh, and, and here's the, the reality. They would never again go to the temple uh, in their entire life. They would never again experience a Passover or a Pentecost or a Feast of Weeks. They would never again see any of the culture that they had been raised with and the question is, how will these disciples go when they're in a totally contradictory culture? Because now they're surrounded by demons, they're surrounded by idols, they're surrounded by a totally foreign way of thinking and a totally foreign way of believing and living. How will these disciples go? And the answer is spectacularly well. That's how. They will flourish. And my question is, because my concern is pastoring a generation that doesn't have the privileges that I had. I, I'm watching young men and women grow up in a totally pornified environment. One of the reasons I relentlessly run the Valiant Man program by Zoom is that churches will sometimes give men and women an opportunity to be discipled in a totally contradictory culture and other times they just don't do anything which means young men and women are growing up in a contradictory culture under the influence of that culture with nothing from the kingdom with which to build an inner kingdom, an inner culture by the power of the Spirit of God. And somebody's got to be doing that kind of stuff because the views on marriage and divorce have profoundly changed. Views on sex 
Views on who you can have sex with and in what ways can you indulge your sexuality. We live in a culture today that's, you know, that it's a foreign culture to the, to, the, to the kingdom of heaven. And who will teach people on this stuff? And as a result, I, I just could have continually, I just finished a course yesterday morning, 7.30 in the morning, the last 10 weeks. I've had a group of men from all over the country and one from New Zealand meet with me 7.30 every Saturday morning as I take them through the Valiant Man course and seek to help them to build a disciple's heart in a contradictory culture. And that's part of the challenge of our day. The natural culture uh, in which I grew up was much healthier than the one you are living in today. Um, but here's the reality is that culture can exist at many different levels. Our national culture is no longer really representative of our Christianity in the, in the way it was 70 years ago. What are we going to do about that? How do you build great disciples in Babylon? That's my concern. And I'm going to give you, I may not get through all of them because I'm not going to go forever. Or oh, this is not the everlasting gospel, there's just a little piece of it. I'll give you some of the most vital important issues that, uh, that require us, if we're going to build great young men and women who will carry Jesus Christ in here and out there right through a contradictory culture and we have no idea how it will unfold. Um, it, could unf it could unfold in that revival spills out of the church and again breathes life into the national culture. That's a possibility. And when you go back through history, it's happened over and over again. Perhaps one of the most, the greatest examples of what revival can do would be the transformation of England, Wales, Scotland uh, and Ireland, as well as the entire young countries of, the Northern, of Northern America under the, the revival with George Whitfield, John and, and Charles Wesley that transformed horrendously contradictory cultures in, in, on both sides of the Atlantic with the power of what God did in the awakening of that revival. It's become known as the Great Awakening and changed the cultures. And I'm, I'm, uh, I'm a beneficiary of that. Uh, the, the Great Awakening took started in 1739. And out of it came the Methodist Church. My dad was saved in a Methodist revival uh, in, in Malden, Victoria, a gold mining town, and one of the great gifts that is that I grew up in a home where my father was a passionate believer, along with a mother who was a passionate believer. But he was the product of John Wesley's ministry 200 years down the track, and I am now the, the, have been the recipient of that. This is the power of what revival can be. You have no idea where it will get to, how it will spill over into the lives of other people. Well, here's the first issue. If you're going to create a church that is vibrant in the midst of a Babylonian culture, we need to be able to discern the defining elements of culture or the defiling elements of our culture and simply decide, uh, you put up the next one, put up the little next one, you go to the next one, you're doing good, there we go. No, no, you've gone too far. Go back, go back. There we are. Discern the defiling elements of culture and make a decision that this is not uh, the kind of culture that you are going to either embrace or to, uh, to reproduce. One of the ways in which you do that is you need to realise your family can be a culture. A family can be a contradictory culture in Babylon. I grew up in that kind of culture. My mother and my father were worshippers. My dad didn't send me to church. My dad took me to church. And I, one of the things that I, I deeply challenge my young, young people about today is that my mum and my dad did not have a casual relationship with their church and they didn't have a casual relationship with worship. My dad read the Bible around the evening meal every evening it underlined to me all the days of my life that we're a family of the Word of God. 
It's not a casual thing. It's so, so vital. You, I could get up any morning of the day and I would find my father sitting at the kitchen table at 6.30 in the morning. His Bible would be open and he would be doing what he called his daily bread. He'd have a little devotional book and he'd be doing his daily bread every single day. Now, I've got to be honest and say, I didn't actually do that, but I watched my father do it. And as I watched my father do it, I, I was the recipient of a culture. He created a home culture that simply wasn't the same as the Age newspaper, the Australian or the, the Sun Herald or what comes out on the news on Channel 7, Channel 9 or wherever miserable news service you want to watch. He's established a culture and I was the recipient of that. And every single Sunday, I remember one day saying to my dad, I don't know if I want to go to church. My father said to me, son, we're Christians, we worship. Very few words, but I have never forgotten them. We're Christians, we worship. My dad never woke up on Sunday morning saying, oh, look at that, sweetheart. Blue sky outside. Ooh, look a nice day. What do you think, sweetheart? Church or fishing? What do you think? Church or fishing? We never had that discussion in our, in our uh, home because my father was, was, was locked in to a culture of worship. And as a result, I found myself in church every Sunday morning, like it or not. And it's become so, you become what you are one day at a time. What you repeat over and over again is what builds who you are. I couldn't be anywhere else except in church on Sunday, partly because my father built that into my behaviour pattern. Secondly, because I then embraced it by the Spirit of God as being vital for me also. Your family's got to be a culture. Your church is a culture. One of the great privileges and do you realize that the synagogue came out of Babylon? This is where the synagogue began in Israel's history. Prior to Babylon, synagogues did not exist. The, uh, the temple was in Jerusalem. You wanted to worship. You wanted to sacrifice. You went all the way to Jerusalem. And if you were in Bethlehem, that wasn't so far. But if you were in Nazareth, that's a pretty healthy three-day trek. And so getting to church wasn't something you did every Sunday. You turned up three times a year for a whole week. And, and except for the last one, you turned up for three weeks. This is one of the reasons they established the second tithe in Israel, was the tithe of all of your finances was to have holidays. And it's not a bad principle to this day that in your family budget, that there's a good budget for holidays. Well, God said you're to take a tithe and you're to use it to come up to Jerusalem three times a year. Take a tithe of your money, have five weeks off. I keep telling that to bosses. Bible says, God says, we got to have five weeks off. You only give us four. You know, you're not fair. Jesus is nicer than you are. He gave them five weeks off a year. Come up to Jerusalem for a week in, uh, in the Passover. Come up for a week during Pentecost. Come up for a three-week break. And just by the way, this is all for free. We have now discovered that the way in which uh, the cortisol works upon the brain in stress, it requires a three-week break from your normal, busy, relentlessly driven routine to allow your physiology to return to normal. The first week you will sleep. The second week, sorry, the first week you will be depressed. If you take a full three-week break and stop doing bizarre things, the first week you will be depressed, the second week you will sleep, and the third week you will begin to feel life springing up and creativity all over again because it takes three weeks to renew your brain. And God knew that. And he said to Israel, you turn up five weeks a year, put a tithe of your money aside for holidays and turn up in Israel. That's not the first tithe, that's the one. Dr. Mike's been talking about the first one. I just gave you the second one, which was part of Israel's history, an insight into the way in which God does life. Church culture. I grew up going to a Lutheran church 
And I thank God for my background. It was, it was wonderful. A lot of th good things came out of that. I learned, for example, Luther's small catechism and Luther's last catechism. There are things I know because I went to the Lutheran church that lots of people don't know. For example, I guarantee you there's not many people in this room that could stand up today, right now, and repeat the Ten Commandments. Tell me the Ten Commandments. Lots of people don't even know what they are, but I do. And the reason is they discipled you in the Lutheran church. Um, Martin Luther realised, in, in fact, it was Martin Luther who coined the term the Babylonian captivity of the church because he grew up in, which, in a time in which the church was Babylon. And he, with, in the Reformation, had to turn that upside down. He described the church of his day as the Babylonian captivity of the church and the revival that took place through the Reformation under Martin Luther turned that stuff upside down. And out of that, I would, I've been a recipient of that. 500, 600 years down the track, I'm a recipient of that revival. One of the things I do know is the Ten Commandments. And they've saved my life on more than one occasion. Because when you know the Ten Commandments, you know that there are some things that God really does not approve of. And he will never approve of them. And as a result, you say, well, I better not do that. You kind of deal with yourself. You say, no, this is not, I do not have permission to go down, to, to jump the fence and commit adultery, for example. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his cattle, nor anything that is your neighbor's. And I always feel really proud whenever I say that commandment because I do not believe I've ever coveted an ox in my entire life. <laughs> <clears throat> I got the ox thing pretty much nailed down. <clears throat> Church can be a culture and that was helpful. But then I encountered the power of the Spirit and casting out of demons and speaking in tongues and I realised my church culture, I, I'm going to have to change my church because there's more in this kingdom thing than what I have known and I can either stay here and simply just never pursue these other elements of kingdom life, the presence, the power of miracles being normal. I, 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 that was not part of our culture. We just prayed for, for people to die, you know, and then we buried them. We were, and we were good at that. We, 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 we helped them move on and everybody's going to die sooner or later. So we, we were kind of... But, but when it came to the power of the Spirit and the baptism of the Spirit, and the, the, there were deeper elements of worship and there were deeper elements of uh, spiritual disciplines that we were never introduced to. I never once heard or a call to fasting and prayer in my 27 years. And this is not a rebuke. But when I became a school teacher and God began to move our hearts to preach in the high school, and, and I be, opened my home and kids used to flock to my house on a Friday night. For the first time, uh, I found myself in the middle of a spiritual war. And I came across a book on fasting and prayer. I'd never heard of fasting and prayer. It was not part of our church culture. And as a result, although Jesus said, when you fast, we never decided, we never explained to people what to do when that time came. When you fast, not if you fast, but when. We'd never been taught or trained or discipled on that. And suddenly I'm, I'm open, we've got my house open and I'm leading a home group and kids are coming to us and we baptised 35 kids in our backyard during that year. Uh, and, and then the opposition became from our neighbours, an opposition from guys turning up with, in cars with booze in the boot and hoping to pick up girls. And it was at that point I came across a little book on fasting and prayer. And the first time I ever fasted was for those kids. Uh, Friday nights, I fasted Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, three nights of fasting and prayer because the previous Friday night had been so disruptive I realised if this thing keeps going down this pathway, we'll never be able to keep running here in, this, in, in our home in the middle of all of these this residences. This is too disruptive. And I fasted and prayed over those kids and on the Friday night, it, it was like someone drew a canopy of peace over our house. And kids would walk through the door and say, I feel different when I enter the house. And later I had a woman who'd received a miracle healing come and share her testimony in, that, uh, in our home. 
And she said, I saw two great angels standing at the door of your home. They're just not letting anything in. And I I looked back on that and I thought, my culture, my church never prepared me for this. I'm sorry, I love you. And I remember telling my pastor, I have to move on. Um, I have a call upon my life and it can't be fulfilled here. I have to move. Uh, And I joined a Pentecostal church. I went to what is now called Life Ministry Centre. And there I was discipled, and I'm only here talking to you today because I realised I need to be in a different culture. I need to be in a culture where deliverance is normal, where praying for the sick is normal, where spiritual worship and, the, and spiritual warfare is normal. I'm sorry, but I need a different culture because I need to be supported in this journey. If I'm living in Babylon, I need to be supported in, in the growth and the power of those things. And then, of course, you've you, you got to develop your own personal culture. You, you can't just rely on other people. You can't just rely on, on, on your church environment to condition you, although, thank God, it has the power to do that. It can condition you. It can help you to see, for example, miracles are normal and forgiveness is normal and the grace of God is normal and worship is normal and fasting and prayer is normal. So you, you, it can, can condition you. But there now has to come a deliberate determination on your part that you will cultivate a kingdom culture in your own heart and your own personal spiritual disciplines will support the kingdom vision that God has for you and his, and his life. And of course, we're only going to get about one point done here today and that's not very good because last week I got all six of them done. You, you guys make me say things that I had never planned to say. When you come to Daniel chapter 1, the Bible simply says this, that uh, if, in fact, if you've if you got your Bible, why don't we surprise ourselves by actually reading from it? The Bible simply says this, that Daniel, having now been transported into a foreign environment, and now having become part of a group of young men that were going to be sent to Babylon University. That's why they were there. To take these bright young Israelites, these bright young Jewish boys, and turn them into Babylonians who could speak the language, understood the religion and the culture, and would help spread and administrate the entire Babylonian kingdom because that's how Babylon worked. Uh, they didn't simply try to impose themselves on, as Babylonians everywhere. They took different nations as they conquered them, took the brightest young men and used them as administrators amongst the, their own people. These were going to be uh, the kind of guys that they were looking for. The Bible says in verse 3, Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians, and this is where these boys begin. And here's the first step. They realised that there were things about their culture they couldn't change. There are things about Australian culture that you and I will not be able to influence. We can't get the government we want. uh, Dangerous. Um, Politics is not the solution to Australia's need. And I, nice to see guys, you know, trying to set up parties, you know, new political parties and get a handful of Christians to vote for them. I've got bad news for you. This is not where the transformation is going to come from. The transformation will never be a political one. It may be that uh, good men and women will end up in the Labor Party, end up in the Liberal Party, even end up in the Greens. And I've spoken to a couple of truly dedicated Christians who, who have made themselves, the Greens have been their home because they say if Christians aren't in the middle of these people to challenge their thinking, who else will do it? And so, in other words, they've dedicated themselves to be like salt 
and they'll get in amongst where the political power is and they will live for Christ in that environment and I have nothing but, well done, good boy, well done. Um, the reality is that Daniel found himself in a foreign environment and he realised, I can't choose who the king is. I can't choose what these people believe. I can't eliminate all their temples. We went down that pathway. We tried to do that some years ago politically. Muslims turn up in the country, they want to build a mosque. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll politically we'll try to stop them from doing that. Sorry, mate, it's a democracy. It's not how the nation works. You don't get to do that. You don't get to decide, well, you can't build, we can build churches. That's what they do in Muslim countries, by the way. We build mosques, you can't build a church. But we don't do that here. Uh, and as a result, we just make ourselves odious in, uh, in the, the minds of you know, normal Australians because somehow we think that as a minority we can run the country and we can't. What we can do is we can build our own culture and believe in the power of revival to, to save and to transform those who are lost as a goose in a hailstorm in the rest of our community. And here's the, the significant thing. Somebody has to think through, what can I accommodate as a believer in Jesus in this culture and what can I not accommodate? You've got to discern the defiling elements of your culture. Well, I'll pick one. The fact is we cannot embrace the pornified, secular, uh, materialistic environment in which we live. And these are three of the greatest dangers that disciples face today. Firstly, this whole drift to a, uh, to a totally godless perspective of what sex is and what role it places in, it, it has in human experience. It's not our job essentially to be trying to write laws that tell other people how to live. It'd be really nice if we could actually get Christians to live the, the theology of the Bible and rather than yelling at other people to see, because judgment in God's thinking always begins at the household of God. The, Paul said this, he says, what business is it of me to judge the world? God judges the world. I'm a Christian. My business is to judge my life. My business is to judge those who call themselves followers of Jesus. This is where we need to be talking about a Christian view of sexuality and just get God's people to embrace that because by and large, all over the place, they simply don't. It's one of the reasons why we, my wife has so much counselling to do with broken and devastated Christian marriages and I will never run out of men who don't need help to deal with a pornified environment because it changes who you are. One day at a time of pornography will totally change the way you think and feel and react and respond and it is not possible to build a God-honouring marriage and have pornography in the mix. Somebody needs to help people with that. That's simply part of my job. The next issue is the secular environment. We live in an environment in which the scripture is entirely ignored. When we watched the latest uh, unfolding of this, um, this fascinating little confrontation over Andrew Thorburn and his one day appointment at the Essendon Football Club, I watched um, Koshi on Channel 7 the next day uh, or over the next day or two, uh, interviewing the pastor of the church because the church have a, have a horrible point of view. They think that somehow abortion is not a good thing. And what, a what kind of human being in this day and age would not see the benefits and the, the wonder of abortion on demand? Well, th there'd be more than one of us who would say, excuse me, when did that become a surprising point of view? I mean, uh, Daniel Andrews, you're a Catholic. Are you aware that the Catholic Church has a profoundly strong environment uh, understanding of the value of human life and that using a, 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 abortion as a method of birth control says something about our depravity? So, but, but that's been lost. Somehow that's been so lost that now Daniel Andrews can say, well, anyone who thinks that there's a problem with abortion is a bigot. No, it, it just... He's someone who actually is not secular. He sees a higher rule in life than your thinking or the thinking of the majority, and that's where the word sin comes in. 
You see, we hate the word sin, and the reason we do is because sin is a theological word. We don't mind talking about our human weaknesses, our human shortcomings, our human, you know, a need for human improvement. But the moment we mention the word sin, I'm not comparing myself to you. I'm not comparing myself to Jack the Ripper or Florence Nightingale. The moment the word sin comes in, I realise I live my life in the presence of God and my life is held in God's hands. And sin is the recognition that human behaviour has a way different uh, call to accountability. It is not easy being a human being. It is a profound gift to be born a human being, but with it comes profound responsibility because we live our lives before our Creator and the word sin reminds us there are things that He does not approve. But that offends people. And we watched Andrew Thorburn uh, lose his job because his church would warn people that homosexual behaviour, not same-sex attraction, but homosexual behaviour is condemned from, from both Old and New Testament and that abortion is a really bad idea in terms of birth control. It's, it, the, the, to see life as just disposable because you are a problem to my economic development is extraordinary. Then Kosh, Koshi, in talking to the pastor, said to him, why are we even talking about homosexuality on the basis of documents that are 2,000 years old? So what he's saying is, don't you understand, mate, that thinking has moved on? Yeah, but here's the problem. God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so you may have a secular point of view, and I understand that. You have a secular point of view. You have a view that sex is an entertainment unit, and you have the view that sex is part of my natural kind of appetites and I have the right to pursue natural appetites. I understand that's the secular view, but it's not the divine view. And don't, we are raising today disciples in a Babylonian culture which says what I think is normal and what the largest group of people think is normal, you too should think is normal. You know, what, are they, what are you letting 2,000-year-old documents? Well, they're a lot older than that, actually, mate. They go all the way back to Moses. Well, that's 3,500 years, mate. But it's who said them. And since Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and Jesus Christ is the one who said, have you not read? God hasn't changed a lot in 2,000 years. And we're raising disciples in an environment in which if you do not understand not just the, the word of God, but the spirit of his word, to understand the spirit of his word, we would be raising disciples that become increasingly secular in their thinking because the Bible has been removed from Western culture in terms of any influence, in terms of the way people think about life. And then finally, materialism. And I won't say any more about that. Well, do you realise you've only got me to talk about one thing? <laughs> one of the great things about... I'm going to finish this point and then that'll, I'm going to pray over you. And I'll pray with you and for you. One of the things about Daniel is that he not only um, observed the defiling influence... Uh, the food that was brought to him. He, he had to accept a name change. They changed his name to Belteshazzar, which means that uh, they'd named him, renamed him after a Babylonian demon. What's he going to do about that? So that's fair enough. Okay, that's, if that's my name, that's my name. But a rose by any other name will still smell sweet. I'll still be who I am. So while in Israel I was called Daniel, here I'm called Belteshazzar after a demon, but it doesn't affect because, you see, that name is not who I am. And so he had to accept that. Now, you can send me to Babylonian University. Uh, in Israel, that would have been a, a breaking of the law. In Israel, they were forbidden from looking into, for example, the issues of witchcraft and divination. But witchcraft and divination are the main courses at Babylonian, Babylon University. 
And he could say, kill me now, I'm not going to your university. But he didn't do that. He had to make a compromise. I don't get to choose what they teach at Babylonian University. So what I'll do is I'll go there and I will be a student, but I will understand their nonsense better than they do. I, will, I am a better, I am a better um, teacher and critic of evolutionary thinking than any biology teacher you'll ever find. Because I made it my business in Babylon, materialistic Babylon, that thinks that the, the universe is the end product of an explosion in nothing, and that life itself is nothing more than the end product of physic and physical and chemical accidents over billions of years. I know their theory better than they do, and I'll pull it apart happily any time I get a chance. But I didn't refuse to learn. I'm not going to learn that. That's godless. No, no, I'm in, a, I'm in Babylon. I need to understand them. And off he went to, Bab to university, and he became a better student of all their subjects than they were and understood them better than they did. But there came a point where he drew the line. He said, I will not honour your gods. I will not defile myself with the food that has been offered to those gods and then make that my food. I will honour God. And he said, the Bible simply says, then, then, um, but the official told Daniel, oh no, I'll go back here. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. He drew a line. And every one of us are going to have, the wisdom, have to have the wisdom to know where to draw lines, and part of that is having a culture in which you can discuss where those lines are. One of the most significant things about a really good small group, about having a really good Bible study group, a really good prayer group, a really good worship group, is that you get to talk about the challenges you face in Babylon and talk them through as people weigh up the scriptures, seek to uh, understand the heart of God. Thank you for joining us for this message today. We don't assume that every person listening has a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And so today, we invite you to begin following Jesus as your Lord and Saviour. The Bible teaches that every one of us has been created for a relationship with God. Sin has separated us from that relationship, but God loved us so much that He gave us His one and only Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus lived, died and rose again, conquering sin, Satan and death itself. If we believe in our hearts that God has raised Jesus from the dead and we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, we will be saved. So if you are ready to pray in faith, turning away from your sin and believing in Jesus for your salvation, please pray this prayer. Dear Jesus, I believe that you are the Son of God and I ask you to forgive me and cleanse my heart from all of my sin. I receive by faith the free gift of eternal life, and I ask that you would fill me with the Holy Spirit. I thank you that I am born again as a child of God and that you have made me a new creation in Christ Jesus. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. If you have prayed that prayer for the first time, we would love to know and help connect you to a local church in your area. You can contact us on our website, numa.church. Thank you for listening.